Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast. Today for episode 232, Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy joins me to talk about misconceptions on Bitcoin, the concentration of Bitcoin, and how Bitcoin is emerging as a store of value. This show brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto stack your BTC in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. They have recently announced availability in New York, so they are now available in all 50 US states. They have a range of new features too, just like XPUB support by Gigi. So you might want to use that feature with a hardware wallet of yours and automatically withdraw to a new address each time. Swan service is built around regular stacking, but if you want to wire money in for a special smash buy, support for this is coming very soon also. That's at swanbitcoin.com slash buy now if you want to sign up for that beta. They're Bitcoin only. They're focused on teaching people to self-custody, so you should send all your new coin of friends there. This is a company focused on helping customers stack sats safely and easily. So go to swanbitcoin.com and sign up. Unchained Capital is building Bitcoin-native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. Their multi-sig vaults are designed for ultra-secure long-term storage. So if you're thinking about your security and you're concerned about the rise in Bitcoin's price and your security situation, well, look into Unchained. They can give you the white glove treatment if you need it, and they can ship you some hardware wallets, answer your questions, and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault using their concierge service. And if you use the code Levera, you'll get a discount when you do that. You can also buy Bitcoin through their OTC desk for purchases $50,000 or higher straight into your new vault. This is a great option for self-directed Bitcoin retirement accounts and for companies moving Bitcoin to Treasury. They offer advanced business accounts, and they can help move your corporate treasury to Bitcoin, where your team controls the private keys. Go to unchanged-capital.com for more. We often talk about security and backups on this show also, and that's why you should consider CypherSafe at cyphersafe.io, producing the CypherWheel product. This is a metal backup product for your Bitcoin hardware wallet seed. So if you've got the BIP39 seed, don't just keep it on that piece of paper. Make sure you're using something that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. So the cipher wheel comes in a wheel shape and you slide in the tiles, four tiles for each word. And make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go and order yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera for a discount. Lynn, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Lynn, I've been following your work. I've seen you've been uh, writing about Bitcoin and saying some very intelligent things. And uh, I know you sort of shifted your opinions a little bit more recently in uh, this year. So let's hear a little bit about you and your story with Bitcoin. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I, I come at this from a, a broader uh, investment perspective. So uh, I, I have a research uh, firm and we cover a variety of asset classes, including equities, uh, alternatives like commodities, uh, precious metals, uh, occasionally fixed income. Uh, and I covered digital assets, notably Bitcoin, uh, a handful of times. Uh, so, you know, I, I originally encountered it back in 2010 or 2011, and I thought it was neat. I, you know, it's, I didn't really uh, think about how to price it or anything. I didn't uh, look into it too deeply. Uh, and then it was, it was during that 2017 bull run where I started to get more and more emails from people as it, as it kind of uh, reached the mainstream. And so I, you know, I, I dedicated a long form uh, research article uh, into Bitcoin and to some extent into, into the, the broader uh, digital asset space, uh, just because that was also the season of altcoins. Uh, and so my approach back then, you know, that, that came out, you know, about November of 2017. 
Uh, and so, you know, Bitcoin was in the, you know, about $7,000 range at that point when I wrote the article. Of course, it went up like $1,000 in the course of writing the article. But, uh, and so my conclusion at the time was that, you know, the technology is very interesting uh, and I can see why a lot of people like it. However, at the, I, didn't, I didn't allocate capital to it uh, because I was concerned about uh, some sort of dilution. So that was, you know, we had the Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash fork. And I said, okay, so all of these are scarce. So Bitcoin's scarce. But what if all the money that pours into the sector just goes into all these different protocols and, you know, there's not one protocol that's able to have a strong enough network effect to maintain like a, a dominant market share. And so I, I had some concerns about that. Uh, and uh, also just, you know, that was after many, many months of, of strong bullish action, ac uh, accent. So uh, I was worried about the overall euphoria and sentiment. And so I, I took no position. I, I, you know, I said, if people want to have a small position, I think it could make sense. But, uh, you know, at the current time, I'm not. And so, you know, fast forward, of course, we had a, a blow off top and then a, a, a crash and a multi-year consolidation. And I kept, I kept monitoring the space to some extent. Uh, and, you know, because I'm interested in it. Uh, but I never really took the time to go another layer deeper and, and to keep examining it. And, you know, roughly in, in late 2019, I started to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, and I was kind of, you know, thinking about building position if there were to be, you know, corrections or, or things like that. And then uh, once we had that sharp correction uh, in March of this year, uh, I, got, I got quite bullish. And that's also when I, I, I went into the rabbit hole a little bit to find out more details about the protocol, including some things I didn't uh, uh, fully uh, grasp in my, in my 2017 research piece. And so uh, I went long in April and, uh, you know, then I continued also looking more into it, uh, increased my allocation, and uh, wrote a number of articles about it, uh, a big public one in July, and then a follow-up here in November. And so, you know, overall, it's been, it's been a, you know, as I learned more about it, I became more bullish on it. And I'd say the one reason I, I became so bullish is that a lot of my concerns about 2017 were addressed. Uh, so, you know, Bitcoin proved that it had a dominant network effect compared to all those other digital assets out there. Uh, and, you know, it has a security advantage, it has a network advantage. And so I, I you know, I felt that it was significantly de-risked enough. And ironically, it was about the same price when I went long in April as it was back in November. So I, you know, I got my first coin for, it was like 6,900. So I was like, okay, it's the same price, but it's, it's de-risked. So, uh, you know, I'm more bullish now. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it because uh, many people who in the recent, you know, we're talking about the March crash down to kind of 4,000 range or so uh, at that time, it was, it was a really interesting marker, if you will, because a lot of the people who weren't so in the know were like, oh, see, it's all dead. It's all over. And ev like almost everyone who was in the know was like, I am trying to accumulate. This is, I'm so incredibly bullish right now. So what was your perspective there at that time when you know, Bitcoin was crashing from, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like from around 10,000 to maybe 4,000 or so in March, 2020. So what was your thinking there? Yeah, so be because I have experience with the gold market, uh, I, I see gold behave similarly during those liquidity events, of, of course, less volatility. And so it's common during the early stages of a recession when you have a big uh, liquidity crunch, right? So everyone, you know, margin calls are coming in, people have to sell whatever they have. It's normal for even assets that theoretically should perform well in that environment to get sold off in the beginning. And then as soon as you get that liquidity response from the central bank and, and uh, often accompanied by fiscal uh, spending and other sort of, uh, you know, uh, policy response, that's when you usually get the, the sharp rebound in, in many of those, uh, you know, assets like gold. And so you can see the same thing happen 
uh, you know, in the early 2000s recession, you could say, see the same thing happen to gold in the, in, in, you know, in 2008. And so I, I view basically Bitcoin as behaving similar to the metals were. And in particular, I mean, silver got crushed around March as well. And I was, I was very bullish on silver. I mean, that fell all the way to like $12 an ounce. And so I was quite bullish on, on uh, gold and then even more on silver. And that, you know, I, I viewed Bitcoin the same way. So I was comfortable investing into a liquidity issue uh, because I knew that there'd be a policy response. Uh, and also, I mean, I caught the rebound. So, you know, it, it went down to something like 4,000 and then it was, it was sharply coming back up. And that's when I said, okay, you know, we're, we're definitely in the, the rebound phase here. And I was pretty bullish at that point. And that's one of the really the hardest things to do as an investor is to be actually buying when, when there's blood in the streets, right? Everyone can talk about it, but in practice, achieving it and doing that is actually the, the part that takes some real skill, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, at the same time, there's uh, if you're, it's almost like a trap because a lot of people are afraid to buy when there's blood in the streets. But the types of personalities that, uh, you know, for one reason or another are more value oriented and they're more likely to be able to, you know, do that. They often have a tendency to sell too early. Right. So now now we've had a giant gain. And so I had to resist the temptation like, OK, I got a double. Like, should I just unload my coins now? And so I haven't sold a single coin, but I, you know, I also publish research for other clients and they all have different risk profiles. And I'll explain like, OK, you know, we, we've we've doubled our initial investment depending on how much people put in. I can see they might want to rebalance. But me personally, I don't plan on, on selling at this point just because I don't think I don't think this bullish run is over. I'm still very bullish long term on the asset class. Uh, and so, and of course I don't want to have taxable events or anything like that. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's always kind of tricky to keep holding, uh, even when you have that kind of contrarian mindset. That's a great point. And historically there were many people who maybe they bought some Bitcoin at $1 and then they sold at $10 and they're thinking, oh, wow, I got a 10 X, yep. but then they missed out on this huge, huge gain that came yeah. afterwards because again, they hadn't really peered into Bitcoin to understand what it is and what kind of market it's actually competing for. So yeah. Lynn, when you are thinking about what kind of market Bitcoin is competing for, how are you thinking about that? Uh, so, I, you know, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, different people in the community all explain their own views of it. Uh, and so I, I start from the perspective of digital gold uh, because uh, that's already a very large addressable market, right? So gold has a market cap, depending on the price at any given day of, you know, in the ballpark of 10 trillion. Uh, and even the part that's for private investment purposes. So if you factor out the central bank and the and the jewelry component, there's still trillions of dollars of gold investment. Uh, and you know, so I, even if Bitcoin is only digital gold, it can still you know go up multiple times over. And then if I think beyond that, I, I do you know there are arguments for it could be much larger than than gold because you know it it, call, it fixes some of the issues. Uh, that gold has, for example, it's verifiable, it's more portable. So, you know, if it were to expand beyond that, I think there's a case to be made for that. But, you know, I focus on, you know, maybe one or two halving cycles here. Uh, and so I'm, I want to see how it performs, uh, you know, in this particular bull run, and I want to monitor it over time. So I'm, I'm starting from that, that perspective of, you know, primarily emphasizing its store of value. And that's also another shift I had from 2017 to 2020, because in my 2017 article, I was examining it both as a, a medium of exchange and as a store of value because they were, they were kind of competing narratives at the time. And so my conclusions back then were that as a medium of exchange, it's probably overvalued. And I, I, I showed different quantitative reasons why. But I was like, okay, but it, you know, if it were to have a rapid adoption, it, it could justify its price. But you know, it's basically like a growth stock. like It's priced as though it's going to be more adopted. But then as a store of value, even back then, I compared it as a market cap to gold. 
And I said, okay, if it takes 10% of gold's market share, if it takes 50%, then you can get some pretty bullish numbers here on Bitcoin. So even in my 2017 article, uh, you know, I, 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 I looked at the, the long-term potential, but I was kind of torn between narratives. And like I said, concerned about the, the network dilution. And so in 2020, with those risks addressed and emphasizing the store of value aspect, uh, you know, above all, that's what made me kind of quite bullish on it. Mm, yeah. And also I noticed as well, because you're interested in many different assets, right? You're not a Bitcoin specialist. And so there's a difference there in terms of knowledge, but then also in fairness, the uh, Bitcoin specialists tend to be more permeable. And so how do you think about that kind of, uh, you know, when you're approaching the world and you're, the way you're analyzing things is, you know, not necessarily a Bitcoin specialist? Uh, so I, it, it, I think it can add a degree of ob- objectivity. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I, I've kind of used that before when analyzing the precious metals markets, because those can also be quite emotional markets. There are some people that are permeables on gold, for example, uh, you know, whereas I uh, sold my physical gold in 2011, uh, and whereas a lot of uh, bulls at the time kept holding and holding and holding. And so uh, basically, uh, you know, for me with different asset classes, uh, I'm, I'm a very long-term holder, but I still don't mind saying, okay, I'm bearish on an asset class over a multi-year period for reasons X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so by being able to kind of find value in different asset classes, uh, you know, I think one of my approaches with Bitcoin was I, I, you know, I, I basically tried to take what some people were saying within the community and explain it to people that maybe were not in the community. And coming from someone that, that kind of approaches multiple asset classes, it turns some people onto it that might not have otherwise seen it. And I think that's, that's kind of my voice in this, in this space is basically say, you know, without blinders on what asset class am I, am I bullish on? What asset class am I bearish on? Uh, and, you know, looking out at the long term, I'm, I'm quite bullish on Bitcoin. And, you know, occasionally, like, for example, back on uh, November 22nd, I, 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 part of a research note, I warned to my uh, investment clients that probably Bitcoin is near-term overbought, and I, I, you know, I'd be actually welcome to see a correction here. Uh, and so we, we got that Thanksgiving uh, little sell-off there. Uh, but I mostly did that for, you know, explain to them that I'm not selling any Bitcoin, I'm not trading around that view, and I just wanted to set expectations so people know how to handle that turbulence. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think having that that multi-asset kind of approach can can help people kind of navigate these markets a little bit. For sure. And I think it's also historically true to say that during these bigger bull cycles, there are often these little 30% pullbacks along the way. So I suppose that's something you've also been, you must have also been looking at, right? Exactly. I showed them that, you know, the 2016, 2017 charts, uh, there are multiple 30, 35% pullbacks. And, you know, I don't know if this particular run would be quite that volatile, but it's certainly possible that it will be. And so basically what I emphasized was, you know, I showed a bunch of metrics, you know, there's all sorts of different kind of uh, valuation metrics, like, you know, market cap over realized cap and all sorts of different things. And I showed basically in that, in that uh, November 22nd piece that sure that, you know, more and more indicators are showing kind of near term, you know, multi-week, probably overbought, uh, but there's still nowhere near the type of uh, euphoria we saw in say late 2017 or the previous kind of major having cycle peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in your some of your recent articles, you've commented on some of the different misconceptions about Bitcoin, one of which was energy usage. So how do you answer that question when someone says to you, Lynn, oh, I, you know, maybe Bitcoin's interesting, but look at the massive energy use it takes. Yeah, so I, I, I learned a lot from people in the industry 
you know, because there are, of course, people that are specialized in that, and they know way more than I will. And so what I wanted to do was kind of summarize some of the misconceptions about Bitcoin, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a non-expert, and, and, but from my, like, uh, deep research into it, and take that and, and apply that to some of the common uh, criticisms. And so with energy, I, I point out a couple of things. One is that, you know, anything of value generally requires a lot of energy, especially if we're talking about a decentralized store of value. So gold, for example, requires a massive amount of energy to get every single you know, ounce of gold coin. You have to remove uh, literally like tons and tons and tons of rock to get a gold coin, uh, plus all the logistics, plus all the transportation, all the verification, uh, plus the, you know, putting it into uh, its final form. And so that's a very energy intensive uh, industry. Uh, of course, the energy is more front loaded, uh, but it's still a very energy intensive industry. And so my point was that sure, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, uh, but that energy is goes into its hash rate, goes into its security, and is what separates Bitcoin from from most other stores of value, and especially from other you know alternative digital assets. Uh, and so basically, it was saying okay, it consumes a lot of energy, but you can make the argument that, that this asset makes that energy worthwhile because it gives people options they didn't have before. Uh, and so there's kind of that, you know, the market currently is saying that it's, it's worth that amount of energy and that it's willing to put that energy into it and that there are demand for that energy. Uh, the second one was, uh, you know, going along uh, points that people make that Bitcoin really kind of optimizes to, to find uh, cheap energy or stranded energy or, you know, anytime there's an overproduction of energy in an area, uh, Bitcoin can kind of arbitrage on that. Uh, an example I was familiar with basically is that, you know, I, I believe it's Iceland that has really low energy costs. And so they arbitrage that by, uh, you know, refining a lot of aluminum uh, because it's a very electricity intensive uh, process. And so they basically said, okay, we have this resource. And so we're going to put it to use in this way. And, and we're basically going to export our energy, our electricity cheapness in the form of our aluminum uh, refining. And so Bitcoin's kind of similar in that, you know, if there's you know, overbuilt hydroelectric dams or if there's stranded oil and gas, like some people in the industry specialize in, uh, those resources can be put into Bitcoin. Uh, so I, I didn't really have a problem with uh, the amount of energy usage uh, as part of my bullish thesis. I see. Yeah. And uh, I think it, it could also arguably said that arguably be said that uh, as many governments around the world are subsidizing renewables, then in some ways, people who are able to use renewable to mine Bitcoin are kind of yeah. sucking up that subsidy. So there's a bit of an yeah. arbitrage there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I think the other big question that many people coming in is around volatility, right? So they'll say, oh, look, it's, you know, it, it can go through these crazy swings and in the space of a few months, it can, you know, it can 10x or whatever, uh, and then it can drop heaps. Um, what, what do you normally, how do you think about that when uh, thinking as an investor there? Yeah, so I, I define it as an emerging store of value. So instead of being an established store of value, like say gold or treasuries, or whatever the case may be, uh, Bitcoin is an emerging store of value. Uh, so the idea is not that it's currently a, a store of value in the sense that you know an investor can put in money into Bitcoin and expect that it'll be worth the same amount six months from now when they need that for a down payment. So it's not a savings account in that sense. Uh, but you know, an analogy I've made is that you know if you look at equities, right? So if you have a blue chip stock, it's been around for 50 years. It's you know it's still it's still valid. It's you know pays good dividends. Uh, you know, that's a stock that's a, a decent store of value. It, it's something you can put a lot of money into. You don't have to worry about it too much, especially if you have a diverse basket of, of companies like that. Whereas if you have a small growth stock, 
it's going to be more volatile, but then you have more potential from it because you're, you're, you're pricing in the potential future, which might not happen. But if you think there's a high probability it happens, you, you, you're basically pulling, pulling forward some of that uh, value. Now, with Bitcoin is tricky because unlike an equity, like a growth tech stock, Bitcoin uh, you know, advertises itself as a store of value. And so there, there's that little bit of a competing narrative about the volatility, but if you just kind of take a step back and say, okay, it might not be a store of value yet in that sense, it's an emerging store of value. So if people are correct about you know, all the different bullish potential of Bitcoin, then it will grow into being a store of value. And in the meantime, that volatility, if you're right about the general direction of it, is more than a store of value because it's, it's a growth of value. It's a, it's a you know, multiplier of purchasing power rather than merely a maintainer of purchasing power like gold generally is right and probably similar i guess gold is kind of like seen maybe more like a blue chip whereas bitcoin is more like yeah. a growth stock in that kind of exactly. analogy. yeah yeah um and uh, also in your writing i've seen uh, this kind of explanation of perhaps the phenomenon of bitcoin right so you, you talk about this idea of the constant low-key influx of new capital right because all these people are you know as we say stacking stats and at the same time, there's a reduction in the supply. So what are you getting at there with that dynamic? Yeah, so I, I, I brought in some of the charts uh, in my article. I referenced some of the charts from Plan B, you know, the well-known stock-to-flow model. And so my approach with that model was, you know, I, I didn't have an opinion about the accuracy of the, the forward projections of the price. I kind of I kind of disregarded that part of the model. Uh, but what was valuable to me was, were the quality of the charts, uh, that linked the price uh, of Bitcoin over time strongly to the halving cycle. Uh, and uh, in addition to just looking at the mathematical correlation of how that works out, uh, you know, basically the whole idea is, you know, roughly the first two years of a halving cycle are pretty bullish, whereas, you know, the next two years of a halving cycle tend to be more about consolidation and kind of finding a balance until the next halving period happens. Uh, and so, I, I kind of stepped back and just logically, you know, did some thought experiments and show, okay, if you have a set number of coins, if new capital wants to come in regularly, uh, but then you have a reduction in, in new coins, you can easily see why the price goes, uh, you know, pretty parabolic during that time. And so even with pretty benign assumptions about how much demand has to come into the space, if you, if you have a, a situation where, you know, a lot of the initial holders are not selling, uh, and there's a decent amount of uh, constant demand coming in, uh, you can get a pretty strong price rise just from that supply reduction. Uh, and then, of course, that also triggers you know, more demand to come in because then they're excited about the price performance. And that's why you tend to overshoot uh, you know, the model each time is because you, you get that kind of blow off top of, of momentum and FOMO traders coming in. Uh, and so it's basically just an ext extraordinarily powerful incentive mechanism because it's fully transparent. So we all know it's going to happen. Uh, but until there's actually that kind of liquidity squeeze and, you know, more people want coins than are, you know, e you know, easily accessible from like, you know, call it weak hands or traders, whatever the case may be. It's not until that happens that you get that kind of really strong uh, bullish action. Right. And uh, to the point that you were mentioning there about those people who are accumulating and not selling, I think Bitcoin is also fascinating as well, because people are able to do these kinds of on-chain anal analytics to see, okay, yeah number of coins held more than one year or two years. And those actual metrics can give some level of insight as well. I'm not sure whether you've uh, looked into any of those or that those have um, been a part of your analysis. 
I have, yeah. Like when I was, uh, you know, researching the halving cycle, you can see, you know, the, the percentage of coins that are held for over a year or over two years uh, tends to follow a, a certain pattern along with that halving cycle. So, you know, it, it tends to build up during that, that consolidation phase where you get a lot of those hodlers just kind of holding onto their coins, just still accumulating. And you have that kind of rise in the percentage of coins that are not really moving. Uh, and then during those massive bull runs, that's when you see some percentage of those hodlers start to take profits. Uh, so you have people, you know, they might have been holding for a year, two years, three years, uh, and they start to to sell into some of that bullish strength. You know, it could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe, uh, maybe Bitcoin's becoming a very large share of their net worth, and so they want to, you know, uh, take some gains. Maybe they want to buy a, a, you know, a, a mansion with their gain. Whatever the case <laughs> may be, Lamborghini. Uh, so for whatever reason, they sell into that bullish strength, and that's what what creates some of the liquidity until you eventually have a blow off top. So I, I've, I've found a lot of the on-chain metrics to be extraordinarily useful uh, because I, I approach things uh, primarily as a fundamental investor. And so I know people that use technical charts for, for what Bitcoin's gonna do, whereas I prefer viewing the fundamentals. So you know who's buying, who's selling, uh, what are the mechanics uh, of you know, what makes them wanna buy and sell uh, and what are the use cases? Uh, so I, I like the fact that it's, it's very transparent. Yeah. And speaking of transparency, I think another interesting theme is this whole idea of concentration of Bitcoin, right? So people come out and say, oh, look, the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin is, you know, or it's it's so highly concentrated. How do you uh, think about that issue? Yeah. So I had, I had a tweet that went kind of semi-viral around that subject, which was, you know, people were pointing, there was kind of an influx of tweets I saw about how, how concentrated it was. So I just pushed back a little bit and showed how concentrated the U.S. stock market is. Uh, and so it is true that, you know, as far as we can tell, Bitcoin is pretty concentrated. Now, that's still an estimate because, you know, you're looking at the number of addresses and, you know, all that. So, of course, one big holder can have multiple addresses and one big address can be a custodian from multiple smaller holders. Uh, but as a, as a general, you know, esti estimate, we know that it's, it's fairly concentrated, uh, but it's, you know, comparing how, how vastly uh, concentrated the U.S. stock market is, it's really not that much different, especially considering that the U.S. stock market is so much bitter, bigger, we'd expect it to be more, uh, you know, kind of spread out, but it's not. So, for example, the top 10% of holders of the U.S. stock market hold 88% of it, uh, and then the other 12% uh, is held by the other 90% of people. And so it's extraordinarily concentrated. And if you think of Bitcoin even further as, you know, a, a fairly young tech stock, right? So, you know, it might have still have a lot of insider ownership from some of the initial founders, from some of the early investors, uh, you know, so it, it's not like one of those stocks that's been around for 50 years. It is like widely held. It's still uh, fairly concentrated. So I, I think over time, Bitcoin can spread out more than it is now. But in the meantime, I'm not really worried about its concentration. Uh, because it's you, ha you have kind of that same uh, concentration effect in most other asset classes as well. And, you know, that does create some degree of, when you get some of those brutal sell-offs, even within a bull market, you know, part of that is from the concentration. You have kind of whales coming in, taking some profits. Uh, but as long as people can put up with that volatility and don't lose sleep over, you know, week-to-week -week changes and, and, and talk about, you know, price manipulation and things like that, if you can kind of have a multi-year outlook, uh, the, the concentration is is probably not that big of a deal, in my view. Right. And uh, I guess it just, uh, like many other things in life, there's going to be an unequal distribution and it's going to be power laws and Pareto 80-20, uh, like many other things in life. Um, so uh, I'm also uh, interested to just talk a little bit more about kind of the like broader macro environment that we're in. 
Um, so, you know, people are faced with an environment of higher inflation and they, they perhaps feel like they don't have as many options in terms of where they can put their money. So why, why is that? Uh, so there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one, the challenging thing is so I've written a couple of notes recently about uh, inflation. And the challenging thing is because there's different definitions of inflation, right? So there's, you know, some schools of economics focus on the broad money supply. And so the broad money supply is increasing rapidly, especially on a per capita basis. Uh, then that's inflation. It's already inflation regardless of what prices are doing. And so, I, you know, we can refer to that as monetary inflation. So, you know, the broad money supply in the U.S. went up well over 20% this year. Uh, and so then there's other types of inflation, like asset price inflation, which is when, you know, normally when you have that kind of broad increase in money supply, uh, that can pour into scarce assets, whether it's real estate, equities, gold, Bitcoin, fine art, wine, you know, fine wine. Uh, those things tend to go up very quickly, especially when you have a lot of wealth concentration in society. And so, you know, most of that money gains are going to the top 10% or so, and then they're storing it in, in those assets. Uh, and then, of course, you have consumer price inflation can happen when the, the broad level of prices goes up. And we've seen over the past several years uh, a lot of imbalance in there. So we've seen you know, things like healthcare, uh, tuition, childcare services, uh, all those things have gone up, gone up very rapidly in price. Whereas things like electronics and other things have been more deflationary uh, due to technology, due to offshoring, uh, you know, due to... All, all sorts of different factors like that due to demographics, even due to debt. So you can have that kind of deflationary offset. And so, you know, Bitcoin as, as a store of value responds a lot to that monetary inflation and that asset price inflation, uh, which, you know, those are the numbers that are really big this year. And the reason they're so big is, you know, the U.S. is running very, very large fiscal deficits. Uh, and then importantly, rather than extracting that capital from, say, issuing bonds that, that people buy, right? So you're, if you were to run deficit, there's basically a couple different models of government financing. So you can tax from one part of the economy and spend it in another part of the economy. And it's just kind of a rearranging of, of what's happening. Then you can add you know, debt to that. So you say, okay, in addition to taxes and spending, we're also going to issue treasury bonds, extract capital you know, from volunteers that want to buy those. And we're going to also put that somewhere in the economy. And again, you're just kind of rearranging things. However, when you're running large deficits, that the central bank is printing new dollars to buy those treasuries, uh, that actually directly increases the broad money supply uh, far quicker. And so, by law, you know the Fed can't buy directly from the treasury, you know, on an ongoing basis, uh, but they can buy through the primary dealer banks. Uh, so basically, the treasury can issue tons of treasuries, banks buy them, and then they sell them to the Fed. And the, the Fed just creates new bank reserves out of thin air and uses those to buy those treasuries. And so you basically have indirect deficit monetization. And that's, you know, that's, that's a, a key part of, of kind of, you know, most structural uh, inflation trends. I see. And so uh, in your view, then, is it mostly an American story or a US story about uh, people wanting to buy Bitcoin? Or are you seeing a case there for people in other countries around the world also? Uh, it's pretty widespread. So, you know, I, I, I I cover uh, something uh, called the long-term debt cycle frequently. Uh, that was a topic that was popularized by Ray Dalio, and it's it's something I've done a lot of additional work on. And that's the idea that you know, as it's kind of it's kind of basically within this the, the Keynesian Keynesian framework we have, where you have uh, you know a, when you have a business cycle, right? So you have a recession, and then you start to get you know a deleveraging event. That's when the government comes in. You know, the central bank cuts rates, the government does stimulus spending, and you stop that deleveraging about halfway through, and then you start building up leverage again. 
And so if you string multiple of those short-term business cycles together, you're never really deleveraging all the way back down to where you're starting. And so after five, six business cycles, uh, you get higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP, both in the government and the private sector. At the same time, interest rates are hitting lower and lower levels uh, each time. So they're able to raise them a little bit during the expansion, but then they cut them during a recession and they never get back up to where they were in the previous cycle. So you get higher and higher debts, you get lower and lower interest, and that, that lower interest allows all those entities to hold more and more debt relative to income, relative to GDP. Uh, and then that, that party kind of stops once you hit the zero bound. Uh, because then you can't you can't realistically cut interest rates much deeper. You know, some countries have gone mildly negative. Uh, you would need you need basically to eliminate cash, but to go deeply negative. Uh, and so they turn to asset purchases and deficit monetization instead. And historically, uh, you know, once you hit the zero bound, that's when you get you know in the years in the decades that follow, you eventually get some sort of currency devaluation, and that's basically how you end up deleveraging the system. So instead of deleveraging nominally by you know defaulting or paying back the debt. Uh, a lot of it gets partially inflated away. So the money supply goes up a lot quicker than the debt and eventually they, they start the whole cycle anew. And so that's something that is happening in the United States, but it's also happening in much uh, else in the developed world. So, you know, we have a ton of debt in Europe. We have a ton of debt in Japan. Uh, China's, uh, you know, private sector is incredibly uh, leveraged. Uh, and so it, it's mostly a worldwide phenomenon, more so in developed countries. Uh, but then of course, emerging markets have their own problem because even though they have less debt as a percentage of GDP, the issue they have is that a lot of their debt is denominated in dollars. So their own government can't print that away. They can't. So that, that's why emerging markets tend to have more inflationary crises more often. And that's why they tend to act like default more because their obligations are often outside of the jurisdiction of their own central bank. And so, you know, Bitcoin is very popular in certain countries that have, a, you know, uh, currency failures. Uh, and things like that, or even just, you know, not even like a full failure, just like a, a constant loss of purchasing power. And so I view it mostly as a global story. Back to the show in a moment, but first a word for the sponsors. Lend at HODL HODL is a global non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform. It allows you to lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. HODL HODL offers a P2P lending solution, ensuring a secure and transparent collateral storage system by providing unique multi-sig escrow for each deal. This is a way to grow your savings and earn attractive returns on your investment. So if you have any stable coins lying around, create your offers and earn interest by lending on Lend at HODL HODL. Or if you are a Bitcoiner and you need some liquidity, you can borrow stable coins and keep on HODLing. With HODL HODL's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend at interest rates. Go and check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. And finally, Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. That website is knoxcustody.com. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. And as you rightly point out, there are a lot of countries in the world who are not uh, monetary sovereign, i.e. they are able to have their own currency and also borrow denominated in their own yep. currency. And because of that, for example, somewhere like Argentina, who has to borrow in US dollars, 
that's what's creating a bit of this dynamic where yeah. they face higher inflationary pressure over time just because they can't uh, manage it so well themselves. Whereas uh, if you are USA, if you are Japan, you are in a different uh, story. You're, it's a different category. Um, so bringing it to what people face, I guess, we would say people face an incentive to go into debt, right? People face an incentive to go get a mortgage because over time, the value that you repay will be inflated away over time, such that your real, the amount you're paying back in real terms is coming down over time. So it helps people who are in debt. So then what does that sort of look like over time? Uh, would we say that that's also part of the reason why we're seeing these huge housing bubbles because everyone is incentivized to go into borrow and buy a house right yeah pretty much i mean that's that's what we saw to the buildup of the of the 2007 uh bubble so after the after the stocks crashed uh you know after 2000 uh they cut interest rates super low and that helped encourage a housing bubble you know combined with you know banks it's not acting rationally and people acting you know irresponsibly so that that kind of policy that incentivized bad behavior combined with their willingness to, to behave badly uh, can cause those bubbles. Uh, and you know, more broadly, the way that the global monetary system is designed ever since the early 70s, ever since we, we went off the Bretton Woods uh, system, basically, you know, every country's incentivized to have weak currency, right? Because they want their exports to be fairly competitive and they, you know, they want to have positive trade surpluses. And, and you know, so a lot of these uh, countries have mercantilist policies where they, you know they'll, they'll print money to buy you know more and more foreign exchange reserves uh, in a, in a uh, specific uh, attempt to weaken their currency. Now, of course, they don't want their currency so weak that it looks like an emerging market currency where you know people can't import what they want. But they basically want to have this 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 constant weakening pressure on their currency. And you see this kind of over time. It's like a game of musical chairs where the, these countries are all have this incentive to uh, you know do uh, competitive devaluations with each other. And so right now, for example. You know, China's running surpluses with the United States, Europe's running surpluses with the United States. And so they have this incentive to kind of keep their currencies, uh, you know, weaker than they should be based on a trade balance basis uh, because they want to keep that business flowing. And in the United States, we've been, on the, we've been on the big trade deficit side of that. So ever since uh, we went off the Bretton Woods system and onto the petrodollar system in the early 70s, we, we've had this gaping multi-decade trade surplus uh, just because of, of how we structured the, the whole, uh, you know, global monetary system, mostly based around energy pricing uh, and just this, this big, you know, weird incentive structure we've had for decades. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are also some, uh, you know, interesting or unfortunate consequences when governments go into too much debt, aren't there? Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I know you were also commenting about what typically happens once they get above a certain debt level, that it's difficult for them to come back down from that. There's like a What's the word? It's like a tipping point, right? Yeah, event horizon. So, you know, the study I was referencing showed that, you know, over the past 200 years, there were, you know, 52 countries that went over 130% debt to GDP. And uh, over the next 15 year period after that, 51 out of 52 of those either inflated away, defaulted, restructured it, or otherwise didn't, didn't pay all, you know, didn't maintain the value of their sovereign bonds in purchasing power. The one exception was Japan, uh, but they had some unique characteristics that allowed them to to hold on to that longer than anyone else. So, for example, they they have the largest net international investment position in the world. Uh, so, even though they have high sovereign debt, they run they've ran decades of of trade surpluses, 
And so they have a situation where Japan owns more foreign assets than uh, foreigners own of Japanese assets. And so they have, the, they have this constant stream of income flowing in from their assets around the world. And so they, you know, plus their highly organized culture, low, low unemployment rate, they've basically been able to, to push that longer than anyone else. But generally, once you get above 130% debt to GDP, uh, you generally start to see a degree of currency devaluations or default. And in the United States case, uh, and of, of course, that can take different that's a, there's a spectrum of outcomes there. So you can have, in, on one hand, you can have hyperinflation, which is more often happens when you have external obligations, either war reparations or dollar-denominated debts if you're Argentina, things like that. If you're a monetary sovereign, then you are, historically get kind of a partial currency devaluation. So the only other time in U.S. history where we had federal debt to GDP as high as it is now was the 1940s during World War II. And what they did was they employed yield curve control. So the Federal Reserve said, we're going to hold treasuries across the entire duration spectrum at 2.5% or below. So, so T-bills were held at like 0.38% and the long end was held at 2.5%. And the Fed was able to maintain that peg by saying, we're gonna print money and buy treasuries as needed to maintain that peg. And so even though inflation had these double digit spikes in the 1940s. Uh, there, there are two spikes that got up into the double digits and another one that got into the high single digits, uh, but they still held treasuries at, at you know 2.5% or less. And so anyone who held treasuries uh, throughout the course of that decade, you made all your money back nominally, uh, but you lost roughly a third of your purchasing power uh, after that decade was over, just from a big chunk of that being inflated away. Uh, because even though they can control interest rates, the release valve ends up being the currency itself. Right. And so what's the implication there for, let's say, pension funds, investment funds, um, in, even insurance funds, when they are stuck in this environment where they can't get much, get much of a return out of bonds? Uh, what, what are the typical uh, valves that, or areas that they get pushed into? Well, we've seen, you know, more and more pensions get pushed into equities and pushed, uh, you know, further into the volatility spectrum. Uh, and private equity, even even including you know pensions that have been bag holders from some really bad kind of private equity, uh, you know things like financing shale oil or whatever the case may be, just a bunch of uneconomic pro uh, projects. And it's challenging for them because pensions have often had like a seven percent return target, seven or eight uh, percent, you know, which which could make sense if treasuries yielding five percent and equities, you know, you can expect a little bit more than that. So you can say, okay, with a with a balanced portfolio of equities and bonds, we can get. You know, we can comfortably get seven or eight percent, but when you're in an environment where where yield, yields are near zero, and then stock valuations are consequently pushed very high, right? Because people are willing to pay up for stocks because they're you know compared to the alternative of bonds, so you, you jack up the stock valuations and, and lower the forward expected returns. Uh, then you're in an environment where all these you know institutions have a lot of trouble getting that you know um, uh, return that they need, and uh, you know you can kind of have projections and say, okay, you know. We can, we can kick the can down the road and say, you know, if we're, if we're optimistic about our projections, uh, it looks good. And that's one reason they don't, they don't reduce their uh, target returns, because if they, if they reduce their target returns, then they basically admit they're insolvent. And so they have to kind of maintain the illusion of solvency uh, by still maintaining these pretty high return targets uh, that they often do not meet. Uh, and so uh, it's, just, it's historically very challenging. I mean, you know, if, if this goes anything like uh, history, uh, bonds are unlikely to do well on, especially on an inflation-adjusted basis, uh, and so anyone kind of relying on them uh, is likely to lose some degree of purchasing power. I mean, even in the best case, if you don't have kind of outright high inflation, if you just have you know positive inflation 
while their yields are, are you know, through financial oppression, the yield curve control, either formal yield curve control or informal yield curve control, you're, you're just gradually chipping away at your purchasing power. And that's on a best case scenario. If you, if, in a worst case scenario, you could have a, a spike in inflation while those yields are still held quite low. Yeah, it's a very uh, difficult situation. And as you point out, that's when the world is in, uh, even from a stock market perspective, if, if the valuations are already very high, then from a CAPE, cyclically, cyclically adjusted price equity ratio, you can't be expecting really great returns to come from exactly. stocks. So yep. you're kind of stuck in this weird situation. But at the same time, you might be, okay, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, we should buy some Bitcoin, but perhaps for some of these large entities, Bitcoin simply isn't big enough yet for them at, uh, you know, as we speak today, Bitcoin is around 350 billion as a total, you know, kind of asset. And uh, I guess what's, what's uh, your thinking around that, around the size, the relative size of Bitcoin as a market compared to say gold or stocks or other, um, other investable uh, assets? I think that's absolutely right. And the funny thing is, I mean, even in that sense, gold isn't necessarily big enough, at least at current prices. And so, you know, if you were to have a 5% allocation in gold among, uh, you know, institutions around the world, uh, gold would have to be much, much more expensive. The market would have to be much bigger to be able to absorb that. Uh, so they actually still even underweight precious metals, which are historically one of the alternatives that can hold up if you want a, a somewhat more defensive asset in your portfolio uh, in, in that environment of low real yields. And so, you know, Bitcoin as a as a small fraction of gold's market cap has that has that problem multiple times over, which is is tiny compared to that. And so, you know, we're start you kind of see it, it go up the ladder. So, you know, Bitcoin used to be a, a retail phenomenon. You know, individuals kind of you know either developed it or found it, and it kind of went from the ground up. Uh, then you have kind of adventurous institutions hop on board. So you had Fidelity hop on pretty early and start exploring it, uh, and you have some family offices or some hedge funds. Uh, you know, they're not managing, say, hundreds and hundreds of billions. And so they're able to be nimble enough uh, or, you know, they, they might have kind of uh, quicker processes in order to develop, employ their capital instead of, you know, a complicated kind of model. And so, you know, you kind of go up there. So you start to see some of those more nimble organizations hop on board. And as the market cap grows, then you can accompany, you know, bigger and bigger pools of capital that can potentially, you know, decide to have a non-zero Bitcoin position. Right. And I think the other important part is just over time, as people become more comfortable with Bitcoin, they are more comfortable to up their allocation percentage. So at the start, people just want to, they want to dip their toe in the water, right? Take a yeah. small amount. And then as this thing grows, they're probably going to be more happy to hold a higher percentage, wouldn't you say? Yeah, kind of like, you know, gold, for example. I mean, today, if you have an investor interested in both gold and Bitcoin, they'll usually have more money in gold because you know they 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 will probably won't make up tomorrow and, and gold's down thirty percent, whereas Bitcoin has a higher probability of, of something like that happening. And you know, so as people manage around risk-adjusted you know returns, uh, they generally de-emphasize as more volatile assets. And so that leaves that that can be good for people that don't mind that volatility, that don't have that mandate to reduce volatility as much as possible. And so, you know, people that have high conviction, that, that have a long time horizon, they can overweight Bitcoin more so than some of those institutions can. Uh, and so, you know, I think over time, if Bitcoin grows larger and it becomes less volatile, I, then I think you can see uh, people put more of an allocation into it. It's also a narrative thing. So, for example, you know, back when it was associated, people would associate it with drugs or criminal activity. Some of those narratives are still around, you know, but, but you know, I think as that kind of fades, and you know, as you get the 
you know, Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, approval stamp of approval on it, and you get the Paul Tudor Jones stamp of approval on it, then you can see more and more institutions kind of flood in uh, because they're not the, you know, not they're not the first anymore. They're not they're not kind of risk being viewed as something that would invest in something illicit or something kind of dangerous, right? They're saying, okay, I mean, we're we're in, we're allowed to view it as an asset class now, and so you can you can you know start to have that floodgate open. And I think it was uh, you know, uh, Neil Ferguson's article. We talked about Bitcoin, and he showed some of the back of the envelope math, showing that if every millionaire in the world wanted to put one percent into Bitcoin, you know, even that Bitcoin has to grow dramatically in order to accompany even that amount of allocation. And that doesn't even include the fact that you know non-millionaires want to hold it, and some millionaires might want to have more than one percent. So uh, it's just it, basically the market cap is still tiny compared to the potential. Uh, if if it continues to catch on and grow, and more and more people want to have a non-zero allocation, right? Uh, and uh, as we've seen historically in Bitcoin, it has tended to move in these, well, uh, historically four-year cycles. Uh, do you have any thoughts around, you know, how how big this cycle could go in terms of adoption? So not necessarily talking about like what price or whatever, but more just like how. I guess well taken up. Do you do you think it will be in terms of percentage of the population, as we say, over this next few years? I'm not sure about percentage of population, but I think uh, you know I don't think, for example, to reach like the broad pension level in this cycle. I think you know you're already. I think kind of the adoption you're seeing now, where you're getting you're getting more mainstream interest and you're getting a variety of uh, funds, like especially hedge funds and things like that, that are on the more nimble side of institutions. Uh, so I think I think that's where this cycle ends up is you know kind of the the faster money gets in uh, and is able to 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 get pretty in. I'm curious to watch uh, Google Trends because you know we saw during every time there's been a previous kind of cycle peak for Bitcoin, there's been a spike in in Google Trends uh, searches for it. And of course the the 2017 spike was massive because that's the one where it really kind of hit uh, adoption. And we're still not seeing one of those we're still not seeing one of those search uh, spikes yet. And that could be because enough people. You know, already already figured it out from the last search, and so they don't need to search again. But at the same time, I mean, I still get questions from clients like, "How do you how do you buy Bitcoin?" or "What is the best exchange to buy Bitcoin?" or so people still have to search for things like that if they want if they go from having heard of it but actually wanting to own it. Uh, so there's you still see a, an increase in search activity around certain types of terms, uh, and not just like a, a mild increase. You should see a, a, a spike similar to 2017. Now I've heard, you know, I, I know some podcasters are, are reporting that their that their listens are going up. So that might be it might also be the case that we've increasingly heard, you know, instead of searching for it, uh, you know, on Google, uh, people might be hearing it more and more from podcasts. So it's not a it's not a perfect metric, uh, but I think you know. I'm viewing it more as kind of like what level of, of, of asset manager will it get to? And so I think basically we're at the level it's going to get just more and more of it. So we have, you know, some hedge funds flowing in, uh, but I think by the end of the cycle, you could have a lot more of that, that fast money in as well as uh, continued uh, retail adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think very appreciate comments there. I also, I'm curious if you've got any views on, let's say what kind of news articles or events happening over this cycle that might indicate to you that okay we're looking a bit toppy now it's a little bit frothy are there any kind of ideas in your mind there in terms of what that might look like uh so some of the on-chain indicators are good like realized value compared to market value i think is a good one uh you know just basically once once the technical signals are like extremely extremely overbought 
you know, again, like Plan B has really good models showing, you know, what is the relative strength index on a monthly basis uh, for previous bull runs, as an example. Uh, so I would continue to monitor some of those uh, euphoria indices. Uh, you know, even in this in this recent, uh, you know, kind of uh, bull move and then correction. You know, part of the reason I I got a little bit cautious, uh, you know, wanted to make sure my uh, you know readers were, were ready for a potential correction was I started to see kind of a euphoric sentiment, uh, you know, at least within the community, right? So once you're at the point where you're comparing Bitcoin's market cap to JP Morgan and you're, and you're also, you're also, you know, you're touching new, new all-time highs, that's kind of a classic resistance level. There's basically a perfect storm of reasons to expect that we're going to run into some turbulence here. Uh, and so uh, that was kind of an easy call to make. But then, of course, the hard part is wondering how, how long would the correction go? How deep would it go? And that's why I didn't try to trade around it. I just said, you know, just don't be surprised when we, when we probably see one here. And so I'm looking at mostly in terms of how long we go, you know, into this halving cycle. What does the price action do? What do some of the technical indicators look like compared to previous cycles? What do some of those fundamental indicators like market value versus realized value? And just kind of look for comparisons there. I don't really plan on trying to time a top. Uh, but, you know, unlike some uh, Bitcoiners that say never, ever, ever sell, uh, you know, if it, if it balloons to a, a significant chunk of my portfolio, I wouldn't mind, you know, explaining to people that, you know, they all have their own risk tolerances. And so that I do think it is getting frothy here and that, you know, people can, you know, interpret that however they want for their own situation. It could be, it could, you know, implying that you're in for another multi-year consolidation, which some people wouldn't mind holding through. Uh, whereas other people might not want to see their their gains, you know, go down 50% and consolidate. And so they might want to shift profits and, and just kind of rebalance their risk profile. Gotcha. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think there's also a change in the narrative as well. So as you were pointing out, uh, in 2017, it was a bit of a it was a mix of, you know, people who were confused about Bcash and medium of exchange versus store of value. Uh, but I also think in this coming run or this run that we're kind of going into now i think there's also more of a narrative around regular accumulation right dollar cost average stacking sats um do you, what kind of an impact do you think that will have if more and more people are just every week or every month or every day even just buying a bit that's good i mean that, that can smooth out the volatility and that's you know in addition to the larger market cap i think that's one of the reasons why you could potentially see you know, even though you still see a lot of volatility, I think there's a case you made you'll see less volatility as this grows, because as more and more people, you know, they look, the more kind of price history you have, the more people are confident to uh, accumulate into it. And so, you know, even in my own, uh, outside of Bitcoin, I often promote the idea of dollar cost averaging into other you know, investments. And that's even, even though we sometimes rotate capital from one type of investment to another type of investment, I still think the general idea of, of dollar cost averaging into your net worth uh, is a good idea. And so that's why, for example, uh, I, I've associated myself uh, with Swan Bitcoin just because they emphasize that dollar cost averaging rather than that, like, you know, trading casino altcoin mix that a lot of people kind of fall into uh, when they enter uh, this space. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I really like uh, what Swan are doing. They are a sponsor of my show also. So um, certainly uh, I think that is an important message to carry with us as we're kind of going through this such that people aren't thinking of trying to like be become traders because the reality is for most people, that's just not realistic. Um, So uh, look, I think we're just coming up to the end of time. So uh, if you had any closing thoughts for the listeners, perhaps you could give us those and also uh, make sure you let the listeners know where they can find you online. Sure. I think, you know, this is, it's going to be an exciting cycle, right? Because, you know, every time, 
Bitcoin has one of these, you know, having events and, and you, you've kind of held on through a consolidation phase and you start to retest new highs, uh, it can be a really exciting time, uh, you know, and there's, there's going to be volatility. And I think, you know, one of the most important things is just kind of, you know, keep an open mind to other people as you, as you encourage them to, uh, if you, if you want to sell the asset class as an idea to other people is to basically approach it from where they are. So I, I think, you know, some people have kind of a harsh attitude, which I love to see in some ways, cause I love the enthusiasm. Uh, but I think, you know, also uh, there, if you have kind of a, a, a way of approaching people that, you know, can kind of speak to them in terms of understand, uh, I think it can go a long way to, 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 you know, showing them kind of the value of having that asset class, you know, in their portfolio, you know, why they might want to have a non-zero Bitcoin position as I often say. And so, uh, I think it's just going to be a really interesting cycle to see if it, if it plays out like some of us expect, uh, you know, it's, it's going to open a lot of questions in people. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's best to approach them kind of humbly and, and just kind of, you know, being willing to answer any questions they might have. Uh, and, you know, for me, I can be found at lynnalden.com uh, and I'm at Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Fantastic. Well, Lynn, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. You've certainly had a lot of interesting insights to share. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I hope you enjoyed the show and I just wanted to let you guys know I've got some really big guests coming on the show this month so make sure you are subscribed in a podcatcher application so that you don't miss out. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com and as always any reviews will be very much appreciated. Thanks and I'll see you in the Citadels.